everybody. Welcome back to the big show. This is, as always, as Lutheran as it gets, episode 57, hosted by Pastor Christopher Gillespie. Is that correct? 57? I'm, hey, you're I'm right. Guessing. Look at that. Uh, all right, there we go. Good. On the ball. <laughs> On point. And I am Pastor Donovan Riley. Christ, the life of all the living. Christ, the death of death, our foe. Who thyself for me once giving to the darkest depths of woe. Through thy sufferings, death, and merit, I eternal life inherit. Thousand, thousands, thanks shall be, dearest Jesus, unto thee. And as I said, that is Christ, the life of all the living by Ernst Christoph Homburg. Hymn number 420 in the Lutheran service book. Seven stanzas. Seven stanzas in the Lent section. Yeah, and comes to us by that, uh, well, <laughs> so many hymns in the hymnal come through Catherine Winkworth, who is an Anglican, right? Who right. had an affinity. I don't know much about her, but I know she had an affinity for German German uh, chorale. Cause, Apparently, because she shows up often, frequently. Yeah, yeah and... Um, just as a word of caution then of course um you know applies her own theological baggage i suppose we'd say to her translations yeah so sometimes sometimes it gets a little bit off the rails romantic flowery Mm, yeah english (laughs) there we go there we go very british very anglican yeah this one actually is really faithful so Mm -hmm. that's a good so about ernst christoph hamburg born in 1605 at Mila, Mila, near Eisenach, as clerk of the Azizes and counselor, he practiced at Naumburg, Saxony. In 1648, he became a member of the Fruit-Bearing Society and later a member of the Elbe-Swan Order, founded by Johann Riest in 1660. He was regarded by his contemporaries as a poet of the first rank. His earlier poems were secular, including love and drinking songs. Domestic troubles arising from the illness of himself and of his wife and other afflictions led him to seek the Lord, especially through hymn writing. In the foreword to his songs, which were commonly written on Sundays, he says, quote, If anyone, thinking it strange that I am writing hymn poetry, would ask, Is Saul also among the prophets? Or scoffingly say, He follows the common custom of the world and sacrifices unto the world the most precious flower of his youth, but renders only the dry chaff of old age unto God. Then he shall know that I have been especially prompted to do this by reason of the heavy cross with which my good and faithful Lord has visited me. During all this time, I have found my best comfort and strength in the word of God." Hamburg did not intend to have his hymns published, but he desired to use them for the strengthening of his own faith, his own life in faith, and trust in order that he might, in the privacy of his home, with heart and mouth, sing praises to God. He died June 2nd, 1681, at Naumburg. Mm -hmm. His hymns appeared in two parts, Geistlicher Lieder, Erster Thiel, and Ander Thiel, 1659. So there you have it, a brief biography of Ernst Christoph Homburg, and also a note about Christ, the life of all the living. Ernst Homburg published this hymn for Passion Tide mm-hmm. with its striking refrain in his collection, Geistliche Lieder, which was published in two parts at Jena and Naumburg, 1659. This hymn was in part one. According to Koch, this part has the engraved title, Naumburg, 1658. It was headed, Hymn of Thanksgiving to His Redeemer and Savior for His Bitter Sufferings. In the preface to his Geistliche, Geistliche Lieder, Hamburg states, quote, I was specially induced and compelled to the writing of hymns by the anxious, anxious and sore domestic afflictions by which God has for some time laid me aside, mm-hmm. unquote. The omitted stanza seven reads in translation without the refrain that thou wast so meek and stainless doth atone for my my proud mood Mm. and thy death makes dying painless. All thy ills have wrought our good. 
Yea, the shame thou didst endure is my honor and my cure. Beautiful. Catherine Winkworth's translation of this hymn in her chorale book for England, 1863, omits stanzas three, four, and six, and also departs slightly from the original meter. The translation above is based on her text for stanzas one, two, five, and seven. Stanzas mm-hmm. three, four, and six are a composite translation from the Evangelical Lutheran Hymn Book, 1912. And this from the Lutheran Hymnal Companion, 1941. Yeah, I think that's helpful. Uh, the uh, the stanzas that weren't translated um, are acknowledged to come from uh, Richard Massey, 1957. So, and we've talked about this, I think, on the previous shows, when, when we pull a, a German hymn into English, mm-hmm. uh, at, at least initially in, in our tradition, the Missouri Synod, they, they come through some other tradition, right? So, Usually, uh, yeah. Yeah, somebody in England translated it, because those we have this unfortunate hap, um, habit of hastily compiling hymnals. <laughs> mm-hmm. You know, it's like, last minute. LBW, got to throw that in the toilet and try to get LW out in four years because everybody wants it. And then, <laughs> uh, then we get kind of uh, a mess. Uh, I think LSB, though, uh, in particular, that, that we've read from here, mm, that was a 10-year project, so it wasn't too hasty. Mm-hmm. Although, right. <laughs> getting a bunch of pastors to get a job done, that's not exactly easy anyway. Well, so. any, any committee project is difficult because Maybe. every member of the committee <laughs> wants a vote and wants to put their individual stamp on whatever the project might be. This is why it takes hundreds of years to build a cathedral. <laughs> right, exactly. <laughs> this uh, is yeah, this is just human nature. You put more than two people together, you just put two or more people together around a table and ask them to come to a compromise on something and there'll be some there'll be some debates and some fist pounding on the table and like I said everyone needs to put their feels the necessity of putting their stamp on the project in some way. Despite having so uh, having composed so many hymns, I mean, really, uh, mm-hmm. this is the primary one that we know him for in English. Right. Yeah. Well, and I wonder too. I was reading recently again. I started reading um, Marcus Aurelius's Meditations, and something that scholars of Aurelius note is that of all the Stoics, he's the only Stoic who wrote for himself. He didn't write with the intent of publishing his meditations, his mm. ruminations. Mm-hmm. He was writing essentially to himself in his own personal diaries. And as a consequence, there is a sense of intimacy and a sense of profound self-awareness and self-reflection that takes place that in the other Stoics, like say Seneca, who knows these are going to be published, there's a sense of, there's just a sense of I'm writing this for posterity. Yeah, I'm writing this for public consumption and therefore I need to phrase these, these thoughts in certain ways. It's more and careful address. communication. Yeah, that's right? maybe, yeah, that's a better way to say it. It's or cautious more careful. even. Right. Knowing people are going to read and digest this, therefore I really have to focus on communicating the essence of Stoic philosophy, whereas Marcus Aurelius is simply meditating on how, how, do I, how do I discipline myself, my mind, and my body in order to serve my people better. Yeah. We've talked about that with preaching and that... Um, you know, the best preaching, at least for us, I think personally, and, and, and or even reflecting on our own sermons, or when we're, when we're right on the edge of what we're mm-hmm. comfortable saying, right? Right, right. You know, uh, especially in regards to the gospel and, and its mm-hmm. universality, right? Right. <laughs> like, oh, are we, are we going a little too far here? I mean, but that's right. right where we need to be. And so these mm-hmm. hymns that are, I don't know, more raw, I guess, mm-hmm. in their expression, um, they're also more poignant. They, they really mm-hmm. get to the, get to the mind and the heart. I can't remember who said it, but it was to the effect of that all hyperbole, all hyperbole regarding the gospel is understatement. Hmm. Wow. You can't. You can't. Ex- we've all battled with this, I'm sure, at a different point in, in our ministry. That we think, well, I've got the law in hand, and I've got the gospel in hand, and I know its limits, and I can see the horizon line from where I stand, and then the spirit drives you into the waters and you discover that once you've waded out past what you're comfortable with, that this is, this is in fact, there is no beachhead on the mm-hmm. other side of this. There is no boundary that borders this ocean, that the gospel is an endless ocean that you yeah. can either wade all the way through or drown in. And, and also, yeah, your sins being cast to the bottom of the sea, forgotten forever. I mean, how do you, right. how do you, you can't limit that? <laughs> no, you can't, but we try. Yeah. Because as you noted, it's what we're comfortable with. And 
there's a certain recklessness to faith that it, when regarded by the standards of the old Adam or the world, there's a recklessness to faith then that as I was having a conversation last week with someone that said, uh, in regards to the conversation, you're a, you're a fire hose. Mm-hmm. Meaning I had gone, I had gone further than he was comfortable with. Mm. And yet what I had stated was scriptural and orthodox. It was simply the case of, I'm just not comfortable going that far. And mm. so it's not so much a matter of recklessness. It's not so much a matter of being provocative for the sake of provocation or, or stepping over the line just for the sake of pushing boundaries. It's more a matter of, I've got to go where the spirit leads. And when I write that sermon, the first person I preach to is myself. And to your point then, at least in my discipline for sermon preparation and writing, I write a manuscript because I need to keep my brain on task. Mm -hmm. But also I write my sermons with the intent that no one will ever hear this. First and foremost, I'm writing this to myself. Therefore, go, just go. And don't stop when you're uncomfortable. Stop when you have nothing, when you've exhausted every avenue. I forget who the author is, but uh, uh, excellent little book on writing called Writing to the Bones. That says that idea. I think think, uh, Chad Bird told me about it. But it's it's, it's that same idea as you write it, um, you may end up, you know, putting in a file or in the garbage afterwards, Mm -hmm. but you need to write it. And, right. And no, don't like don't edit. <laughs> you edit after the fact. You don't edit right. before you write. Um, but right. like for the the procrastinator, or that would be me. Um, mm-hmm. You know, I'm already editing before I even put anything down on the page, which isn't helpful mm-hmm. because right. then you never write because you're always um, hmm, afraid of writing. <laughs> sure, absolutely. No, that's a good point too. That yes, one I'll write until I'm exhausted and then come back to it later in the week and look it over. And that's when I start the refining mm-hmm. yeah. and the grinding and the polishing of it. As you noted, early on, I focused too much on addressing people in my congregation and conversations that I had had with them during mm-hmm. the week and yeah. making sure to address it in the sermon and recognized that I was exhausting myself serving too many masters. Yeah. There is, I mean, there are opportunities for that. That would be at the bedside, right? Right. Or exactly. or in the home, mm-hmm. uh, but in the in the public proclamation before the congregation, right. you you can't address everybody. And you everything. can't. And yeah. as I noted, you serve too many masters, and it distracts you from. I'm I'm called to preach law and gospel. I'm preached, or I'm called to preach God's word of law and God's word of gospel. And the Holy Spirit's the one who possesses the art of distinguishing those for the hearers. Right. And they, they may receive pro- the same word either as gift or as, as cruel. Right. 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 I'm a proclaimer, not a self-help guru. Mm-hmm. I'm not a therapist up there. And to the point then, back to Hamburg, I think this is the thing that draws me to this hymn, draws me back to this hymn even, is he didn't write this with the intent of people need to sing this. He wrote this to himself and if nothing else for his wife or his family. Right, in the midst of struggle, conflict. Affliction, right. And as we've noted before too, if you look at the history of the Romans commentary, for example, the greatest Romans commentaries that have ever been written as far as public opinion have always been written in the midst of crisis and affliction. Mm -hmm. Yeah, we talked about Melanchthons, right? Right, absolutely. And which surpasses Luther, I think, personally, just because Luther's lecturing in 1517, things are still developing for him, whereas Melanchthon's writing in maturity and having been seasoned. Whereas the greater Galatians commentary from Luther is... Right, the gold standard. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And so there's, the I think, that too, that affliction, what does affliction do? Well, one, it strips you bare, and it says, hey, whatever you thought you were physically, mentally, emotionally, you're not. Mm -hmm. And now stripped of, robbed of your strength, robbed of your mental acuity, robbed of your, even your faith. Yeah in in your ability to believe mm-hmm. stripped of hope possibly and as we whenever any of us have been dra- like sick sick where you can't go further than five feet from the bathroom there is that prayer that comes out and in fact i was watching a documentary last night where a young man who served in vietnam noted during the day i abandoned the religion of my fathers and i abandoned god and I renounced God and mm-hmm. embraced my atheism. And every night when we went out on patrol, I prayed. Yeah. 
is that there's something about affliction that drives that confession out of us. It drives a prayer out of us, even when we want to declare, based on all the evidence to the contrary, that there is no God. But in affliction in particular, this is what a theologian of the cross is. A theologian of the cross is made and formed and fashioned in their confession and their proclamation in affliction and suffering. Yeah. Thinking back, you know, on all the preaching, I mean, we've talked about just throwing away our sermons when we go back and look at them. Mm, but the, I mean, there's one, I think I preached maybe one Easter sermon, actually truly Easter sermon, but we found out that that uh, Anne had had a miscarriage that week mm, during Holy yeah. Week, right? And so, you know, the crucible really being, you know, <laughs> being burned down, you know, to the, right. to the stump, you know, just right. emotionally, um, and having to, you know, actually face the death of, of a child, um, despite right. what you know, New York State would say about about a child, child right, dying at right. that age. Um, you know, it's real, and, uh, mm-hmm. and and Easter, you know that well, Good Friday and Easter had to right. uh, had to speak to me. So I ended up writing a sermon for myself, actually, and then find out that that that's actually what people needed to hear. <laughs> it's almost as if, at least in my case, I will say it is preaching against my own unbelief and doubt and mm-hmm. despair. Yeah. Is that the fervency and the urgency <clears throat> with which I proclaim in those moments, as you noted, it's not because I had enough coffee. It's because I really, I am raging against the dying of the night. Dying of the light, sorry. I think people see, like we see it in this hymn, which we'll get dig into here in a moment, but, um, but they see it in your preaching too, that it, it's authentic. They know mm-hmm. this is even if you're not really necessarily showing a lot of emotion or whatnot, I mean, sure, it, it's obvious that, no, this is, you know what you're talking about. <laughs> and the burden of that, one, to carry that, but the, all the, the other burden is they also then recognize when you're mailing it in. Yeah, unfortunately. Yes. So they recognize when something's authentic and real, and therefore, by comparison, they recognize when something is inauthentic and not real. Which is probably why we avoid trying to be too authentic, so that it's not so obvious. Right, right, exactly. <laughs> yeah, don't don't create that brand for yourself. It is a horrible burden. <laughs> so back to the hymn. I love that too. Yeah, I love that first line though, right? Yeah, Christ, the life, life of all the living. And then death of death, our foe, which reminds me of that really um, difficult confession, right? To say that God is mm. dead. Death, uh, thou shalt Friday. die. Mm-hmm. In the words of the Holy Sonnet of John Donne. Yeah, beautiful. Death, comma, thou shalt die. And in the play Wit, which is based on the poems, the Holy Sonnets of John Donne, she notes, the professor notes, the only thing that separates life from life eternal is a comma, a breath. Yeah. That Jesus is the death, big D death, of little death, our foe. Oh. Who thyself for me once giving to the darkest depths of woe, through thy sufferings, death, and merit, I eternal life inherit. And that word woe is a Hebraism. It means better that you had never been born or dead man walking. So when Jesus says that to the religious leaders, woe to you Pharisees, he simply declared, you're dead. Hmm. I made you and I just declared that I will unmake you. And then to the dead, he says, he's asleep. Hmm. It's very interesting how he juxtaposes and flips on its head our view of life and death and says actually it's the opposite and backwards from what you envision life and death to be. Which is another way to speak of the scandal of the cross. You know, yes, absolutely. That by his death, he destroys death. Well, that's right. scandal. How, it's the opposite of what we see, mm-hmm. right? This is, yeah, this is why we try to domesticate funerals. Mm-hmm. Because, because we don't want to deal with the reality of it. Yeah. Right, exactly. It's too hard. It's too hard. Well, because the only answer to what we see is Christ is the life of all the living. The living, the, exactly. Yeah, and he is. He died this death, and right. he has promised that the, the you know this body will yeah. see the resurrection. This, this yeah, person. you can you can nerf everything in the church. You can nerf your own confession. You can nerf your doctrine. But in the end, death comes for us all. And then what are you going to have to say? Well, it's interesting because I uh, I haven't had a an urn quite like the one I saw at the last funeral, which had like all sorts of pretty rainbow swirls on it. Okay. And, but it was, I think it was out of cardboard. There's going to be an interment eventually, but Hmm. still, um, with cremation, that's a way of, I mean, I'm not a big fan of embalming (laughs) Mm -hmm. because that's just all the awkward conversations that you have around how they look and, uh, (laughs) well, and what, how they do it and how they do it. That's right. And, you know, it's roots in Egyptian practice and whatever. Mm -hmm. I know we can talk about, um, 
you know, Jacob being embalmed and whatnot, but, or was it Joseph or both? Actually, I think Joseph. Didn't Joseph have Jacob embalmed and sent back home? Yeah. (laughs) Get buried by the trees. It's a long trip. (laughs) (laughs) But regardless of that, you look at it and it's like, okay, that's awkward. But even more awkward is there's no body. For me, that's anyway. right. Because remember, yeah. Jacob's Jacob's request was, "Do not, do not bury me with these people. Uh-huh. Bury that's me it. at home with my fathers. Do not let me get buried down here." Yeah, wasn't it by the terebinth tree or something like that? Yes, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. but uh, <laughs> but I, that you can't. That's why I like actually, you know, having the casket because it's you have mm-hmm. to stumble against the fact that there's a body that's going to go in the ground here. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, right. yeah, and so then you then <clears throat> that becomes the preaching of the law in a most vivid way, really. Right, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. What is the purpose of the law? It was given to increase the trespass. Mm-hmm. What are the wages of that trespass? Death. Yeah. And, a- and death does not care about your feelings. It does not care what your age is. It does not care about your health. It does not care <laughs> about your relationships. What's the, uh, I mean, there's this cry out that we not die, right? Yeah, absolutely. And yet death is the mechanism for our salvation and the doorway to eternal life that's something this is what i i keep telling my people and they find great comfort in it is i say the power of the resurrection is that when we go up to the cemetery and we stare down into that grave that's not a grave it's not a mouth that's opened up to swallow us Mm -hmm. and silence us forever that's the door to eternal life it is interesting though that our response to christ being um life of the living and the death of Mm -hmm. death and -hmm. then our response is but save us from death right please yeah, Please, I don't, don't want to make us die. Don't make us die. And like, wait a minute. <laughs> That's how you're going to be saved is right. through death. Which, by the way, is also why we push the sacraments to the background. Mm. Because the primary confession of baptism is this is a death and a resurrection. The primary purpose of the Lord's Supper is this is the body and blood of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ given and shed for you. Shed in, for you. Yeah. Upon yeah. The yeah. And the, what is the gospel other than you are dead? Now hear the words that give eternal life. Well, and then we talked about, you know, nerfing uh, funerals, but we do that with yeah. language then too, right? Oh, 100%. And, we, and you think about this hymn, if you had said, Christ is the passing away of passing away or Right, yes. <laughs> Jesus, just, the renewal of our life. Yeah, who, who overcomes our departure or something. <laughs> right. <laughs> then he sounds like a flight attendant. <laughs> <laughs> but rather, I mean, it's most vivid here. It's death yes, and it's woe right. and it's giving up his breath, so... So then stanza two, thou, ah, thou hast taken on thee bonds and stripes, a cruel rod, pain and scorn were heaped upon thee. O thou sinless son of God, thus didst thou my soul deliver from the bonds of sin forever. Thousand thousands thanks shall be, dearest Jesus, unto thee. Mm. There it is. Bonds and stripes. So I mean, talk about it is Passion Tide. <laughs> this is straight up Isaiah fifty three stuff, right? Yeah, yep. yeah. right hand corner. Yeah, yeah. And pain and scorn and cruel rods. Yeah. Hmm. By his stripes we are healed. And also, you know, we're getting the epistles right, being rescued from uh, mm-hmm. sin's bondage. That idea of of, of sin being this uh, cruel, you know, mistress who holds us captive. Right. Hmm. Dr. Luther, in his lectures on Psalm 23, points out that the rod and staff spoken of in the grand scheme is the law and the gospel. Mm-hmm. And I agree The rod is the law and the staff is the gospel, yeah. Yeah, and, and that he uses both. I mean, that, yes. which is, again, you use Psalm 23 at a funeral, right? Mm-hmm. And uh, it's easy to kind of, how do you want to say, only speak comfort and avoid mm-hmm. the way the law has been made manifest right. now. Well, if you really yeah. want to dive into third use of the law discussions, this is, at least according to Willem Leah, the proper explanation or, or image to use for how God exercises that third use, which is, it is like a horse trainer. Mm. And when the horse sees the trainer, the trainer doesn't have to speak orders to the horse. The trainer simply points to the left or to the right, or simply with his grip on the reins, shifts his his grip one way or the other and the horse responds immediately to the trainer and likewise then that rod here it's a cruel rod this is second use of the law stuff mirror mm-hmm. of the law mm-hmm. but in the third use sense that rod is for our discipline and for our guidance and yet it still kills us hmm. yeah the law always kills 
and you don't have to like it. I mean, I think <laughs> that, that, that's it's a challenge, right? Because you you want to say, well, God's God's word is good, and mm-hmm. like, well, yes, it's good, and that mm-hmm. it accomplishes what what he right. uh, has it accomplished, right? Right. It, um, yeah, it kills the old Adam, which is good to the new man. Mm-hmm. But I think if I can choose the the manner of my death, then it's good. Mm. But if I can't choose my the manner of my death, and by the way, this is sacrifice language. Yeah. And this really attacks us at the very core of who we are and our motivations, which is I'll choose how I want to sacrifice myself for my wife, for my children, for my teammates, for my community, for my congregation. And God, on the other hand, may have different plans. Well, and think about, um, you know, the way that... Uh, Jesus says, "Here's how I'm going to save the save the world, right? Right, uh, right. from their sin." And then Peter mm-hmm. says, "Oh, don't no, you can't do it like that." Yes, right. right. So we we want to choose our own death, but we also want to choose to have our own our savior, or at least be mm-hmm. saved in the way that we want him to save us. <laughs> right. Well, we were discussing before the podcast in the roundabout way that the one of the ways that God puts us to death and kills our idealism is we may not sit comfortably in a congregation for very long before he moves us again. Mm, Whereas in, yeah. in my situation, I've been here 10 years, but it took me, going on 11, it took me about 10 years to to comprehend and accept that I was going to be here longer than I had originally planned, which was about two years. And uh, actually one year originally, and I've been here almost 11 now. So for me, it has been accepting that my wanderlust has to be sated I can't just pick up and leave whenever I feel like it. And then the Lord in his foxiness decided to not only anchor me in place by way of this congregation, but then to give me five children Mm -hmm. and to make me a part of the community and to ground me in the life of the community in such a way that other people then say, you can't leave. And then you actually come to learn that you don't really like leaving. And all that that time it was actually... um, you know, some kind of deceit that you were believing. <laughs> <laughs> right, exactly. So in, in the one case, in my case, it was, I need to move a lot. That's the way I grew up and that's the way I lived for a long time. Mm, okay. And so the Lord said, nope, you're going you're gonna to tend this garden for a while. Whereas I think for others who may have grown up in a very stable, um, consistent environment, he says, we got some, we got some work to do on you. And so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to move you from, kind of like Isaac, right? Don't stop at your father's wells. You'll stop mm. when I tell you. Yeah. Versus Jacob. And I think sometimes as preachers, that's where we find ourselves, which is I'm not letting go until you give me what I want, hmm. which is I don't want to die. Yeah. <laughs> Especially not out here. <clears throat> and so however way the Lord, you know, just Jonah is the obvious ob- uh, observation too. Jonah says, I'm going to go west. I'm going to go to Tarshish. I like Tarshish. It's got a lot to offer. And God it's goes, like Vegas. No. <laughs> right, exactly. <laughs> and God's like, no, I'm going to send you to the evilest city on earth right now. And you're going to justify them because that's what I need you to do for me. And he does then beg for death hmm. repeatedly. That's the subtext of the whole book is, please just kill me. Please let me go. I don't, I don't want to do this. So we see this in the lives of the saints. We see this in the lives of all of our saints that we minister to. Yeah. Which is... Again, as we were talking about before the show, it, alcohol and drug abuse for the purpose of self-medication is common, at least in rural areas that I grew up in and that I live in now. Teen pregnancy is normal. I didn't say it's good. I said it's normal. In rural areas that I grew up in where I live now, a lot of the day-to-day stuff that, that occupies a majority of our people's time is normal. It's just not good. And yeah. we yeah. as then preachers are called to speak a good word into that. But as you noted, we can't hold back on the law though. We can't soft pedal the law in order to say, here's the sweet, sweet gospel. Because as I was taught, when we preach the law in its harshness, in its severity, when we preach the law lawfully, that actually opens up the opportunity for the gospel to be preached in the sweetness. And so that's what's interesting about this is that at first glance, you would hear the hymn as being... Uh, just kind of depressing, really, and sad, and and that's mm-hmm. the accusation that comes against, I suppose, Lutherans in general, <laughs> especially it, around Lent, <laughs> and especially around Lent. Um, which I mean, we really do Lent, you know, and we even let Lent bleed into Sunday morning too, which is interesting. Hundred <laughs> percent. Which is like, yeah, you can leave the decorations up, but uh, they're not Sundays. <laughs> they're Sundays in Lent, not of Lent. Right. It's okay. Right. You can have the sacrament. You can rejoice. 
some parishes even might say hallelujah again but regardless um yeah so yeah we really do lent <laughs> we do lent and, but we it's do. i mean it's appropriate it at least sets up a contrast against easter right well that's what i like to joke about i say there are there are good friday people and there are easter people and i hate pastel colors and butterflies <laughs> and butterflies i love black cassocks on the other hand so uh all right <laughs> that's how it works that's why i look forward to lent every year just so i can get my cassock out <laughs> bust it out and wear black class cassock throughout oh with no with no uh no no, uh, no surplus no surplus nope just go straight black. up black straight up then you feel yeah. like mate uh, from neo from the, the matrix. matrix exactly <laughs> That comment has been made. <laughs> Back More to than the stanza. once. Yes. Stanza three. Thou hast borne the smiting only, that my wounds might all be whole. Thou hast suffered, sad and lonely, rest to give my weary soul. Yea, the curse of God enduring, blessing unto me securing, thousand, thousand thanks shall be, dearest Jesus, unto thee. Hmm. As I noted, this is essentially a meditation on Isaiah. Yeah. thus far. Also, it really reminds me of Hank Williams songs. <laughs> Go back and listen to old Hank Williams songs. Hank, like, like, uh, what is it? Uh, six miles from the old graveyard. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Right. Oh, I was thinking Johnny Cash too. It's and, just, yeah. The yeah. man comes around. Well, and what's interesting is it's not, it's not really being conveyed so well in English, but I think we've hit on it anyway, is that, you know, he starts with all the things that Christ has done for us. And then the last statement before thousand, thousand thanks is, but I reject that. Right, but, exactly. Or I have a problem with that. You know, yeah, you die, you've died for me, and yet I don't want to die, right? And yes. here it's like, you've blessed me, you, you've suffered for me, and yet I'll curse you. Right, exactly. And, and that's six more miles to the graveyard. There it is. Thank you. Just want to make sure I got that right. Six more miles to the old graveyard. But exactly, that even in... This is why you and I would argue, especially as pastors, the necessity of holding the tension on the simile. Yeah, right. And and it's lost in the English, by the way. So that's why I pointed mm -hmm. out. But yeah, yeah. I mean that that's really important to always recognize. Uh, faith and and unbe unbelief, I guess, unfaith, mm -hmm. um, are coexist in every Christian. Right? Well, and because if you don't, going back to my previous um, anecdote, what ends up happening is. You have these people who self-medicate. You have these people who get themselves into a corner that they can't get out of. Yeah. And therefore, they either throw themselves into the one ditch of this is unforgivable. God could never mm -hmm. forgive this. Or they throw themselves into the other ditch of self-justification and they dare you to say that what, what has just happened is a sin. How I dare you to tell me that what my daughter has done is a sin. Well, the very fact that you bring that up to me tells me that you know it is. And you simply don't want to be confronted with the reality of it. So right. we as pastors then need to speak to both, not one. Yeah. And if we don't hold the tension, then we actually haven't provided people the opportunity uh, to mourn, to grieve, to lament Absolutely. at their sin. Because right. you've told, you maybe not explicitly, but implicitly told them, you got to deal, you got to deal with your own stuff. <laughs> you got to deal with your own stuff. You do. And, and as I've said before to people, when they've come to me, I've said, listen, what you did was wrong. You know it was wrong. It was a sin. Mm -hmm. And you know that that this is set aside for a man and a woman who want to join themselves together before God and before this congregation and before their community and marriage. It's mm -hmm. a commitment and it's a big deal. And you gave away something that was given to you by the way of gift and yeah. you can't get it back. The problem is, is that you don't know that until you give it away. And in your situation, you gave it away and now there's a baby on the way. Now, what are we going to do about this? Mm -hmm. Not only as a community, but as a congregation. And my primary concern as a pastor is baptism. Right, because the only way that you're going to be able to deal with it um, right. without it being faith-destroying, really, yes. is in confession, right? First, right. in absolution, and yes. living in that forgiveness, or as you said, in your baptism. Right. And recognize that, that yes, this too is atoned for, this is forgiven. Right. In, in using your baptism, the confession is free to flow, mm -hmm. and therefore repentance has given space to breathe and to live and to be uh, a daily re a reality. So that at the one, on the one hand, you can say, this is what sinners do. It's not good, but it is what sinners do. Mm -hmm. Second, what is the confession that comes from the mouth of this person? And then third, does that open up the way for us to drive that this is still a gift? This mm -hmm. child is a gift. 
And as such, we want this child baptized, we want to raise this child up in the faith, we want to put the word of God in this child's hands and into her ears and, and pour it down her throat when the time has come. But we don't want you to see this as a curse. We don't want you to see this as a burden that you must get rid of and abort because mm-hmm. it is a shame versus, right. no, that's, that's what you put on yourself. That's what the law may put on you out there. But in here, we're going to go for repentance and belief. We're going to go for baptism. Right. And that where that makes us uncomfortable is that we're pretty much taught in every other social circle, especially um, <laughs> as we were talking about before the show, um, the social circles that we run in where, where mm-hmm. everybody's pretty much awkward and uncomfortable. And then they, <laughs> right. they have to find some way to tolerate one another's presence, um, even among family. Open which, bar. <laughs> yeah. Open bar is the way to do it. Uh, and, and then we were faced you know, we're face to face in the congregation with, you know, Jesus who makes us uh, awkward, uncomfortable, um, and he himself is vulnerable, right? Right, to abuse right. and to scorn and to shame. And then he calls us to have that same kind of vulnerability, to be willing yes. um, to <laughs> expose our, our weaknesses to others right. uh, in order that we would be, that we could console one another, right? And that right. we could assist in one another's um, repentance even, right? And being As much as we may complain and lament the fact we actually thrive in a shame-based culture mm-hmm. and the difficulty of the accusation he eats with tax collectors and prostitutes is he doesn't ever affirm them, but he also doesn't excoriate them Mm-mm. because they've come to him for a specific reason, which is we've heard that this man heals the body, he raises the dead, he feeds the poor, he forgives sinners. Mm-hmm. And therefore it, it once again is not, well, if we don't excoriate and shame the sinner, we're not preaching the law. Actually, that's not the law at all. Mm-hmm. But rather what the law preached lawfully does is to point out, this is a sixth commandment issue. This is a fourth commandment issue. And ultimately this is a first commandment issue. Mm-hmm. And every community is full of people who are ashamed and guilty. Right. Um, and, you know, mourning and grieving or whatever it is that, that right. have experienced the law. Uh, and the accusation of the law in their own way. And so who does he really um, speak most, Jesus, most viciously Mm -hmm. against? It's the Pharisees who try to fake it. (laughs) Right. The religious leaders who, the other side of the coin for them is more shame, more guilt, do more to alleviate the shame and guilt, which actually just adds to the shame and guilt. But that's what's so beautiful in the stanza where right. um, it's not as personal as in the German, but it's still there. Yea, the curse of God enduring blessing unto me securing. So he yes. he suffers our cursing him and he mm-hmm. blesses us despite it. <laughs> right, exactly. We, we curse God and he says, I love you. We're like, mm-hmm. What? That this doesn't make is, any sense. Exactly. Yeah, if this were a transaction, this is not. Um, this doesn't work. <laughs> Does not. That's compute. a great. That's that's a great way to put it too. If this is a transaction, then there will be no blessing for the curse. There will be no absolution for the rejection and rebellion. Mm-hmm. There's no returning after being, um, you know, exiled. You know, right? Yes, absolutely. Mm-hmm. So stanza four: Heartless scoffers did surround thee, treating thee with shameful scorn. And with piercing thorns they crowned thee, all disgrace thou, Lord, hast borne, that as thine thou mightest own me, and with heavenly glory crown me. Thousand, thousand thanks shall be, mm-hmm. dearest Jesus, unto me. It's beautiful. That's that great reversal theme that Luther um, talks about right. as well, right? Yeah. He he bears a crown of thorns that we bear, um, the eternal crown, right? The, mm-hmm. the crown of honor. We were discussing this in Bible study the other morning, or yesterday morning, I guess, as of this recording, that when the question comes, well, where is God? Or how could God let this happen? Mm-hmm. We are studying the Lord's Prayer out of the large catechism currently, and we're on that second petition. And as a consequence, this whole matter of what Dr. Luther says in the large catechism about conducting ourselves as children of God. Mm especially in this case, in regards to God's name, and then praying thy kingdom come, thy will be done in what follows, is I noted Ilya Wiesel in the the novel Night. There's a a sequence there where they're being marched through the woods in the middle of the winter, essentially to to thin them out before they get to the death camp, because there's just so many people at the death camp already. Hmm. And as they're going through the woods, and they're being driven through the woods so that they're not allowed to even walk, they have to either walk at a very quick speed 
you know, clip or run, jog, that they come upon this gallows with Jews hanging from the gallows. And the person in front of him, I believe, asked the question, where is God? Mm-hmm. And Ilya Vizel notes, he's right there. He's hanging from the gallows, which is as close as an Orthodox Jew is going to come to a confession of the cross. Yeah. But I noted, when we talk about God, we're left questioning where is God in all of this. When we stay focused on Jesus and we don't let go of the tension mm-hmm. between the first article and third article, the left and right-hand kingdoms, then, as my dad pointed out in an argument we had in 2001, I still remember in the living room of my old house, mm-hmm. he lost his faith in Vietnam. And one of the examples he used was, well, where was God when my best friend was vaporized in front of me? Mm-hmm. And his brains and his blood covered, you know, splattered, covered all over me. Had I read Ilya Bazal prior to that or had the experience and maturity to make that confession, I would have said he was right there getting vaporized. That yeah. why do why do men start wars? Well, because of sin. Yeah. Because of our, all wars are religious wars at base because all wars, all conflict is re, rejection of the first commandment. So because why... We want to be God in God's place and we want to have control over matters of life and death. Yeah. And it's even, I think it's even more clear in the original is that, you know, why would you be mocked and deceived and crowned? What, what, what motivation do you have for that? Exactly. Saying that to God. I mean, right. And, and the answer of course, is that, that you delight in me and that you would, you would overcome all of our enemies to, you know, glorify us. That's, you do it all for me. Where was, where was your God when this happened? Well, my God was there being hacked to pieces in the, on the field of battle yeah. so that at the last day, that man who was hacked to pieces can be raised from the dead. That Jesus took that hacking, that, that violence into himself and gave that man the power of his resurrection. Yeah. That that's thou, the point. That thine thou mightest own me. It's kind of awkward to right. say, but well, and this is what we so often I think misunderstand about the word unconditional mm-hmm. in unconditional love is that what that really means. And Dr. Norman Nagel taught me this in one of his sermons: true unconditional love suffers itself to be rejected. That's mm-hmm. what it means. Without condition means also you are free to reject me. Yeah, and. For God to say, I love you so much that I will suffer myself to be rejected by you, even when I'm dying for you, is what makes him trustworthy. It's what makes our God worthy of our love. Because we know every day we reenact the fall, the original fall, and we know that every day he comes and redeems us over and over and over again. Yeah, and I don't, maybe we don't see ourselves so much in this text then. I mean, as the, Mm -hmm. I mean, when it says heartless scoffers, we could think, oh, just those people back 2,000 years ago during Holy Week. Mm -hmm. Like, "Mm, no, I think you probably want to uh, recognize your your solidarity with all humanity here. (laughs) Yes. And that you too are, you know, a heartless scoffer, right? Right. Uh, And that you treat treat him with shameful scorn too. Well, and this is what Lent, for me, this is one of my Lenten meditations every year is in hospital and hospice, at the dinner table, in the parking lot, wherever it may be, on the phone, in church, it is to not shy away from what we've been discussing, which is the reality of death, big D death and little d death, Mm -hmm. and the relation of Jesus to those deaths. And so that when in hospice or the hospital or wherever it may be, I can say, the death that you die is not yours to own but rather Jesus already took ownership of that death unto himself. And therefore, the death you die is the little d death, the physical death of the body that is now succumbed to this evil and sinful generation and your own sinful self. But, and this is the gospel, but. Yeah. Jesus has given you what is his so that he might take on what is yours. And the face of, of, you know, death or of suffering Mm. uh, in the body, I I mean, the, the body itself becomes the proclaimer to say, um, you're responsible, right? I mean, this right. this, this is your fault, but it's not no longer yours because right. it has yeah, been defeated. It's your fault, but it's not your responsibility. Yeah, there you go. So mm-hmm. then we can say uh, the absurdity of our confession is to live as Christ and to die as gain. Mm-hmm. The, con- the absurdity of our confession is it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. These are the absurdities of our confession. We are being regenerated, regenerated and renewed in the Holy Spirit. Mm-hmm. and made righteous by the Holy Spirit so that we might not claim this for ourselves. 
yeah, we're com- we're complicit in our death, but but we're uh, absolutely excluded uh, from any of the actions of transforming death into life. Right, that's all on Christ. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. So back to the hymn, stanza five. Thou hast suffered men to bruise thee, that from pain I might be free. Falsely did thy foes accuse thee, thence I gain security. Comfortless thy soul did languish, me to comfort in my anguish. Thousand thousands thanks shall be, dearest Jesus, unto thee. Hmm. Actually, I'll just continue into the next stanza. Thou hast suffered great affliction, and hast borne it patiently. Even death by crucifixion, fully to atone for me. Thou didst choose to be tormented, that my doom should be prevented. Thousand, thousand thanks shall be, dearest Jesus, unto thee. It's interesting because it's hard to translate, right? But it, yeah. but it's, he suffers so that we, you know, he suffers yeah. something so that we don't, right? He's beaten so that we're not beaten. He's mm-hmm. accused so that we are not no longer accused. Right. By the law, right? Um, right. He's, he <laughs> he comforts us by being uncomfortable, if you like. Um, yes, absolutely. <laughs> that sounds, that sounds a, a little weak, but yeah. Well, yeah think of it this idea. way. If someone were to ask, how is it that you can keep coming back and taking these beatings? The confession is, it's not me who's taking these beatings, it's my Christ. Mm. Mm. So therefore, keep it coming. Yeah. Because you can't break me, because you can't break Christ. And there's a way that we sometimes get this wrong, I think, in regards to, you know, the freedom of the Christian is that we're, we're free now from pain and suffering and um, <laughs> sorrow. And Then I've been doing this entirely the wrong way. <laughs> yeah. Well, and, you know, if your best life now, I guess, is kind of the, the famous maxim mm-hmm. <laughs> that, that, you know, of, uh, folks who teach this is yeah, that, right. you know, you're going to be rich and wealthy and prosperous, you're going to be healthy and you're going to have a, a family and they're going to be beautiful. Yeah. Um, and then, you know, in our own experience, and I think, uh, I think if you looked at most of <laughs> the Christ- Christianity, it's quite the opposite. Actually, we're the most pitiable, right? <laughs> Jesus in the Gospel of Matthew in particular is very, very specific in chapters five through eight about what awaits us mm. as Christians. Mm-hmm. And I don't remember there being any positive affirmations in those chapters. Yeah. You will be wealthy. You will have a new Cadillac every summer. People will adore you and fawn over you. Money will be thrown at your feet because of your preaching. Yeah, it's I guess. No. But but if you look at the witness, say of uh, the Acts of the Apostles, and uh, yeah. and and people are scandalized by the fact that they're as cheerful as you know Christians are as joyous as they are, despite everything that's happening to them. Yes, that they're even yes. singing hymns while the while the lions are eating them. You yeah, know? right, right. Like how can how what is wrong with these people? They must be mentally. Um, un, unwell. <laughs> yes, right. That's right. They're imbalanced. <laughs> they need to be medicated. They they really should be screaming in terror. <laughs> That's right. Exactly. This, these Christians are absolutely no fun to uh, torment and execute and persecute. I mean, there's a lot of them. So, right. You know, we have pl- plenty of ammo if you like, but yeah. But it is something that you and I talk about quite often pastorally that in this country, because we live in a bubble of safety, relative safety for the mm-hmm. most part, especially where you and I live now, in a rural area. Kind of we're, we're living know, we're, really in the best time uh, that's ever been. Oh, a hundred percent. Yeah, I like I like the medical care I receive, <laughs> and I yeah. like mass transit, and I like technology. Um, but this is also then why it is easy to get away at least eighty percent of the time with soft language, soft kinds of piety, just soft peddling. This, which is, you can pretend that the world is fair, and you can pretend that you're not suffering and you're not struggling secretly in private. You can pretend that you don't self-medicate. You can pretend that you don't have the same problems as those people who aren't Christian, or at least as Christian as you. You can even pretend that you're holier than most other Christians. However, in the end, your Lord will humble you. Yeah, and you will come face to face with, well, I guess we just call it the reality Mm -hmm. of uh, the corrupted world, of of the sinful world. Yeah. It, what was the big time when everybody came back to church? Oh, 9-11, right? 9-11, that's yeah. right. Yeah, well, why? Because it's like, oh, there are actually, we do have enemies that they're not just across the sea, they're here. Yeah, they're in your face now. Well, I was reading this morning, Dick Winters discussed the D-Day, the Normandy invasion on D-Day, is that in Great Britain and the United States, um, businesses, schools, and public um, facilities closed so that people could go to church and pray. Think about that. They shut down the country 
so that people could pray for the soldiers who were going to jump on D-Day and go up, up, go up the beach at Normandy. Wow. Imagine that. And as Dick Winters noted, just hearing that is what encouraged and emboldened us to go forward with this. I speak against the United States being a Christian nation, mm-hmm. but, but certainly uh, Christianity has had more of a significant influence in the past then than it would Well, now. notice when though, <laughs> right? During times of great conflict and affliction. Mm-hmm. Well, of need, right? We put of it that need, way. exactly. Yeah, you, <laughs> we find God or find the need for God or find whatever you want to put it, recognize, you know, um, the appropriateness of prayer um, in, that, in that moment of, of great need. Yeah, and maybe that's a, a good way to phrase it is that our God is the God who is needed. And hmm. therefore, when we do not experience that need, let's say acutely, precisely in all of its unmasked, undomesticated, untethered reality, viciousness, harshness, unfairness, mm-hmm. then we cry out. Just read Lamentations, right? right. Read Jeremiah. Mm. And very quickly you discover, oh, read the penitential Psalms since it's, it's you know, we're recording this during Lent. Right. That's one of my disciplines is I reread Dr. Luther's uh, meditation on the penitential Psalms. Or go um, pull up, I don't know if I can find a link, but uh, like Ken Corby's, uh, you know, examination according to the Ten Commandments. Yes, Go through yes. those questions. Uh, and, and that's exactly what they do. Same thing with Christian mm-hmm. questions and their answers, right? Is yes. to say, um, yeah, you might f- today think yourself... Um, without need, mm-hmm. uh, but consider yourself again, right. according to God's and, word, and then listen to what he has to say about your need. That's the genius of those questions. Do you yeah. believe you're a sinner? Yes. How do you know this though? <laughs> From the 10 commandments, which I have not kept. And what do you deserve because of this? Mm-hmm. And then we get into the, then we get into the nasty stuff. And thankfully then it is, do you hope to be saved? Mm-hmm. So notice the switch from law to gospel. Hope. Yeah. It's beautiful because even if you say, I know I'm a sinner pastor, the second question is, how do you know you're a sinner? Well, I do this and okay, more specifically though, mm-hmm. let's, let's look at those 10 commandments. Let's read through them. Let's meditate on them. We see this in the right for individual confession and absolution even. So maybe we talk about law and gospel that we could talk about law and gospel that way and saying <clears throat> um, that the, the purpose of the law is to show us our need. We're always needy. Uh, mm-hmm. The deceit of sin is that, that we no longer need God, Right. And, and so then that's right. what the law does, is it reveals to us that desperate need that could never be fulfilled by us. And this is, now that we're thinking about this out loud as we get to the conclusion of this hour, is this is the nature of the church militant, is that in affliction, in suffering and struggle, we recognize our need is revealed to us. And then we notice that the hymns uh, the, that sing of the church militant primarily are about Jesus and Jesus alone. Whereas the church triumphant stuff mm. that is primarily about the, the celebration and the joy of the resurrection mm-hmm. and about us being there with all of the saints and so forth and so on, but we fool ourselves. And because we are unrepentant theologians of glory, the old Adam is, we tend to want the church to always be the church that is triumphant. Or you might say always Easter, but never Good Friday. Yes, right. As Dr. Herman Saze said, is we don't reduce the entire church here to Good Friday, but the entire church year flows into and out from Good Friday. Mm-hmm. So therefore, every Sunday can be Lent. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yes. Let's wrap this up. Stanza seven. Then for all that wrought my pardon, for thy sorrows deep and sore, for thine anguish in the garden, I will thank thee evermore. Thank thee for thy groaning, sighing, for thy bleeding and thy dying for that last triumphant cry, and shall praise thee, Lord, on high. Hmm. So there you go. There is a triumphant cry, but it is the triumphant cry of, it is finished. Isn't that something? Yeah. Yeah. And that, that runs to that uh, very, dis, you know, Lutheran distinctive, that, yeah. that, the, that that final cry, that Christ giving up his breath uh, is the fullness of, of the Godhead dwelling bodily, glory, the right. full glory of God being revealed and that he would die for sinners. That's what it means. Which may be the most absurd part of our confession. <laughs> I think so, because it's a moment of, of darkness and of thunder and of mm-hmm. lightning and in terror and torment, and yet right. that is the moment of glory for, for the right. Christian. That's when we would gather around God and say, praise be to thee, 
and the world looks and goes what well exactly the opposite of what happened right yes absolutely <laughs> you have john and the women that are at a distance but apart from that right. everyone else fled yes absolutely yeah so we would flee the very moment of time that yeah that, that every everything good for us uh, from it, everything good comes from that moment right and yet we would run away from it it's hmm. easy to monday morning quarterback the disciples at that moment <laughs> until you put until you put it in that perspective so I think that's the reason of, you know, Lenten Tide, Passion Tide, the Lenten hymns, um, the way the Gospels even drive you to that moment, um, yeah. and, and then just sit there sometimes, you know, with excruciating detail, right? Mm -hmm. And yeah. it just takes a while, um, is that don't run away. This is where you need to go. Um, yes, learn from the disciples and how they fled, um, and, and uh, by the Spirit, don't, mm -hmm. don't flee, stay there. You know, and, re yeah, and actually steadfast. rejoice. Yeah, right. rejoice. But in, this is this is such happened. an important point, I think, to end on too. Is the temptation, as always, is to make Lent about us, mm, our disciplines, our were you there piety. when they crucified my Lord? <laughs> is we want to we want to make this about us and how we would react. If I were in Peter's situation, I wouldn't have looked down. I wouldn't have sank into the sea. Yeah. I would have kept my eyes on Jesus. I wouldn't have fled. I wouldn't have been afraid because I, no, dude, you wouldn't. They hadn't received the Holy Spirit yet. They were not enlightened. The scriptures were not open to them to understand. And therefore, as far as they were concerned, they had hitched their wagon to a complete wingnut yeah. who was exposed for the truth, which was, yeah, he did some cool miracles and he was a good teacher as far as that goes. But at the end of the day, as the, the road to Emmaus points out, they're going home because, well, they've got to go out beg for their jobs back. And yeah. try and explain to their wives and their families why they abandoned them for three years. <laughs> well, and the reality is, I think what's even more startling is that, I mean, there really aren't even Easter Christians because yeah. they, they still do not believe, even yeah. after he rises from the dead. It really, we're Pentecost Christians. We're, we're only Christians mm -hmm. by the work of the Holy Spirit. That, right, that, right. So that we see both Good Friday and Easter for what they are. Right, exactly. No, and that's a great way to say it is that it's not one or the other, but we see them simultaneously Mm -hmm. for what for the truth death and, and life yeah right so our triumphant cry is the cross and our lamentation is actually standing at the graveside mm -hmm. you know is that we want to live as you pointed out and we want a therapeutic gospel we want a therapeutic law we want a law that helps us get our lives together and then we want a gospel that says you're doing good you're doing all right yeah. just keep at it just keep at it and the, that transactional understanding of the faith the, the same voice that gives up its breath, his breath at the cross is the voice that calls to the dead from, from the ground, you know, come with 100%. me. Yeah. Beautiful. So yeah, you can try and avoid it, but he's still going to humble you. <laughs> even if he has to, even if he, even if it's at the last, the last instant on your deathbed, when he sends you that preacher, that's what happened to my grandma's husband hmm. is his whole life was just, it was just horrible. And then on his deathbed, three weeks before he died, he called for a pastor. Actually, he was asked if he wanted one, and the pastor was sent, and he received his preacher and confessed his sins and received the sacrament. And much to everyone's consternation, by the way, because... <laughs> Not fair. Right, exactly. You want to talk about a, a parable of the vineyard in real mm -hmm. time? That was yeah. it, man. Yeah. They were so mad at me. Oh, goodness, when I preached that sermon. Nobody, even, even the pastor didn't take me to the cemetery. They left me at the reception. I had that uh, problem once in Indiana as well, where I had the audacity to preach a sermon like that with somebody who stopped going to church <laughs> for forty years and, you know, confessed in the in the hospital before he died. Uh, yep. Wasn't a member of mine, but uh, as a family member, and uh, mm. and yes, uh, you know, pastoral mistakes one hundred and one. Um, you know, I had the audacity <laughs> to mention that in the sermon. You know, right? Um, that yes. That's not what's you know going to church for not going to church for the last forty years isn't. You know, yes. that isn't what saved him. You know, well, it didn't wouldn't save him. It isn't what damned him. It didn't right. damn him at all. Right. You know, his baptism held true, and he confessed Jesus in the end. You know, I was going to say drinking, everything. Drinking church coffee for forty years isn't a sign of faith. It's a sign of unrepentance. Well, it's also <laughs> a death wish. But you know. <laughs> there's that too. <laughs> Wait, you're on Coumadin and you're drinking Folgers regularly? <laughs> How are you still standing up? <laughs> that's, a, that's a toxic brew right there. Right there, man. Oh, oh man. But that brings us to the end of this hymn. And I think since we are, you'll be hearing this uh, during the first week of Lent, I believe, when this mm -hmm. goes up. 
Uh, if it's okay with my co-host, I think we will dive into uh, Dr. Luther on a penitential psalm for Lent. Oh, that'd have be good. Fun with that. yeah. Have some fun with that. Um, so uh, look for that next week, maybe even Psalm 51, since that's where Dr. Luther points out the incompatible contradiction of sinful David going before most holy God and asking, hey, if you got time, could you forgive my sins and cleanse me from all unrighteousness? Yeah. And well, as Dr. Then, Luther notes, he does. <laughs> and, then, and then the confession of the scriptures that, you know, that David was faithful. And you're like, wait a minute, have you read your own word? Right, yeah. <laughs> what does that well, mean to be faithful? And that goes to the point of the earlier analogies is, or an anecdote, sorry, is we want to make it either you're a sinner or you're a saint. You're mm -hmm. either forgiven or you're not. You're either holy or you're unholy. But the reality is, as you pointed out with David, I have many, many people who sin egregiously to the point where I want to just slap myself in the face and go, I can't believe you did this. And yet their confession is Christ. So it's like, how can you be so doggedly sinful and unrepentant and yet simultaneously confess Christ so boldly? And that's, the answer is... Yeah, that's a scandal with, right there. That's the scandal of the cross. Yeah. So come back and we'll dive into that uh, in the next episode. Otherwise, thank you once again. We appreciate everything that you do for us. Please go give us a thumbs up on social media or give us a five-star review over there at the uh, place where you get your where you get your podcasts, all of the different platforms where you get your podcast at. I'm not exclusive to one brand. Pastor no, you can find us on Spotify now too. Oh, right. There you go. Get it really on the cheap. So uh, yeah, that's it for us. And uh, we'll see you next week. Love you. Peace.